God's people said, amen. If you're here this morning and you have burdens that need to be lifted, God can do that. If you have sins that need to be forgiven, God is in the forgiving business. Now, I'm a great fan of Dr. Billy Graham. In fact, I think I shared with you a couple weeks ago that this, he is why I'm a Methodist. I was struggling in seminary about what denomination I should be a pastor in and, and had several choices. And anyway, Dr. Graham made that great statement that if revival was ever going to come into a denomination or through a denomination in the United States, he felt it would come through a people called Methodist because of our revival history and because of our connection globally. And so I say, okay, God, that's my sign. And I've been praying and looking and waiting on a revival that God would use a people called Methodist to change the world, a great awakening. You know, we all have our uh, funny revival. How many of you have been to a revival? Raise your hand real high. Let me see it. Okay. About half of you, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. A revival. Now, you know, we have these funny stories about revival. I didn't share this in the last service, but I, I remember when some of my high school buddies, we went to a revival down in Raceland, Kentucky. We would go to the revival, and, and Gary Kendall, a good friend of mine, had just gotten contacts, 1973, um, and they were glass contacts, right? And he'd just gotten contacts, and the preacher was preaching a great, pre great sermon, and they were singing like many, many verses of the closing him, asking people to come forward to respond, uh, to make a decision for Jesus. And he, the preacher kept saying, I know there's one more person here that God is really working with. God is really working on. And Gary's back there rubbing his eyes, you know, because his contacts were killing him. And, uh, and finally the pastor walks down right beside Gary in the seat and says, son, isn't there something you need to do tonight? He said, yes, sir. I need to take these contacts out there killing me, you know? And so the pastor kind of went back up on the stage and said, we'll sing the last verse now. And, uh, so, but I do want to say at the end of this service, that if the Holy Spirit speaks to you and God is moving your heart, I don't want you to stay in your seat. I want you to, to respond to God's call upon your life. We're praying for a revival to break out, a great awakening, when a bunch of nobodies start telling everybody about somebody that saved their soul. That's a revival to me. Now, the, the text we're going to look at this morning in God's Word is about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was somebody in, in, in Israel. He, he was somebody well-known when he would go among the Jewish people. But in Athens, in, in Europe, he was a nobody. And nobody knew who he was. And yet he, here he is telling everybody he can on his second missionary journey about this somebody that changed his life. Would you stand as I read God's word to you this morning? Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 22. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there, everybody. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some uh, foreign God. And then they took him to the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. 
we want to know what it's all about. Say that with me. We want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. Father God, I pray that today we will want to know what it's all about. That we would not be confused by gods and by religions that are not focused on the one true God. Focused on you, Father. Give us discernment. Give us understanding. Give us the conviction of your Holy Spirit. May you be glorified. May you be honored as we preach your word today. In Jesus' name I ask this. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Now, Athens was a religious city. About 10,000 people lived there, and they, they're reported to have 30,000 gods or idols carved into buildings and stationed along the streets. 30,000 gods among 10,000 people. But what had changed in the city? Had it elevated the ideals of the people? Had all those gods raised the morality of the city? Instead of progress, you look at history, there was decay. Instead of purity, there was immorality. And ultimately, if you study history, those societies crumbled. And let me just say a word here that is prophetic. I'm concerned that we are on the same slippery slope today. As we chase after thousands and thousands of gods in this culture, in this world we live in. Now, if you look at Paul's strategy here, Paul kind of gives us uh, a teaching lesson on evangelism. Then he, when he arrives in Athens, he, the first place he goes is to the synagogue or to the, to the church, uh, the Jewish people that would not have, uh, they, they would have understood the Bible. They, they understood the Old Testament. And so Paul could teach them uh, how Jesus was the Messiah that they had been searching for, that he was God's son that had come to earth, that they had crucified but God had resurrected him into new life. But he didn't stay in the synagogue. And I want you to know from evangelism here, from revival, it never should stay in the church. It has got to go from here into the marketplace. It has got to go from here into the public square. And that's exactly where Paul ended up, out in the public square, telling everybody about the somebody that had saved his life. Now, he ran into some philosophers uh, Epicureans were some of the philosophers, and these were uh, um, learned men who were seeking pleasure as much as they could with the least amount of pain. The most pleasure they could with, with the least amount of pain. Food, luxuries, comfort, pleasure with the least amount of pain. Now, before you are too critical of those Epicureans, we have a lot of that going on in our world today where people are, are trying to find some pleasure with the least amount of pain, to maybe stretch the, the, the boundaries of marriage uh, in my relationship with my wife or my, my husband and, and to have some pleasure with, but I don't want to cause too much pain. Or maybe it's alcohol or maybe it's, it's drugs or maybe it's gambling, but you're, whatever it is, you're trying to, trying to stretch the limits so I can have as much pleasure, but I don't want any pain associated with it. Their motto was, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You see, they were agnostics, and they didn't believe in the afterlife. 
So just live life to the fullest and try to avoid pain, no pain, just all pleasure. And then you had the Stoics who they were all about intelligence and about science and reason. And, 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 and if we just find it out, we can figure it out. Very humanistic and believing that if we can make ourselves smarter, we can become more like God's. You know, that it's all in our thinking and we can figure this out. We don't need a, a deity. We can become a God if we become smart enough. And, and, and they were very stoic and they, they, they just kind of stayed at it. And their motto was to grin and bear it, to grin and bear it. And I believe also there in the marketplace and in the public square were serious seekers, people searching for real truth, searching for something to live for, that these 10,000 gods aren't working I'm still empty inside. There, there's this God-shaped vacuum inside of me that there's, this, there's an emptiness inside of me. And some of you know what that's like. You've, you've chased the gods of this world and, and it's left you empty and, it, and, and you keep going back again and again and it leaves you empty. And you want something to live for. You want something to die for. Something that's worth dying for. I believe that the God of creation I believe that Jesus Christ can give you life, life abundant, life of meaning. So, so Paul's here preaching, teaching, and, and they, they take him to Mars Hill. They take him up to the top of the city in Athens. It's where the council of the city met. It's where Socrates and Plato and Aristotle had all debated truth. And here is a nobody. In fact, they call him a babbler or a seed picker. A seed picker, they, they meant by that a bird that would just pick up seeds along the ground and, and, and carry them off and, and spread them. They saw Paul as a seed picker, a babbler who was a nobody, but he was telling everybody about somebody that changed his life. They accused a, a, a Paul of introducing two new gods, two foreign gods, the God named Jesus and a God named Resurrection. And they wanted to hear more about Jesus and the resurrection. And I hope you're here today to hear more about Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul begins to preach to the philosophers in Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God this God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. The one that you don't know, I'm going to make known to you today. Now you can imagine that the mood was cynical. The mood was skeptical. Yet Paul, great lesson here on how to talk to people who are skeptical. He found some common ground. I, I see you are very religious. That you worship a lot of God's. And I saw something that you describe as an altar to an unknown God. Now, looking at the history of that, what, what was an altar to an unknown God? Well, it, it seems about 600 years before Paul got to Athens, there was a plague there in the city. And many people were dying, and they couldn't figure out the cause. And, and, and they kept sacrificing to the gods, and the gods weren't working. And so some brilliant guy, Epidemus, got an idea to get a bunch of sheep black sheep and white sheep, take them up on the very top of Mars Hill and release them. And wherever these sheep went and laid down, it would be that God that they would 
have to sacrifice the sheep for. It wasn't a good day to be a sheep uh, in Athens. And so they, they, they did that. And so what happened is sheep will be sheep, right? And, and a bunch of sheep started laying down next to no gods. They just laid down where sheep lay down. And so what they did was they slaughtered them there and built an altar there to that unknown God. That's called a fishing expedition. <laughs> Some of you may be on a fishing expedition for a God to worship. Maybe this will make me happy. Maybe that'll make me happy. Maybe I ought to try that, and that'll make me happy. See, that's what Paul ran into in Athens. We see a lot of it today. See, the Athenian philosophy of religion was make the gods happy, and they won't bother you. That's a lie. <laughs> make the gods happy, and they won't bother you. You see, the altar to the unknown God is basically a safety net for undiscovered gods. And before we're too critical, we live in a religious world that we've built and carved out altars to known and unknown gods. Let me give you a couple come to mind. Uh, the first is, and I've, you've heard me talk about this, and I'll say it again, the altar to relative truth, unknown truths. That we've built these altars, a safety net for truths that have not yet been discovered. <laughs> relative truth means that, that if you believe it, it must be true. I don't... Def Refute it because that's truth for you. That's relative truth. And we, we have altars all over this culture based on relative truth. I love what A.W. Tozer said, the great theologian. He said, Jesus is not one of many ways to approach God, nor is he the best of several ways. He is the only way. And I kind of modified Tozer and I said it this way. Jesus is not one of many truths, nor is he the best of several truths, but he is the only truth. Now, that's not my opinion. That's what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father, he said, except by me. Whenever Jesus was before Pilate, in his, in, when he was being um, on trial, Pilate asked the question, what is truth? And Jesus basically said, you're looking at him. <laughs> I am truth. I am God's truth incarnate realized here on the planet. Now, today we worship Jesus as the truth. You sang about Jesus being the truth. It's an astounding claim that Jesus made. Nobody else in any other religion in all the years has ever made the claim, I am the truth. But Jesus did. And what he's saying is, I'm the secret of all truth. Psychological truth, sociological truth, scientific truth, philosophical truth, religious truth. And, and today, as seekers... As searchers of truth, you've got, to, you've got to make a decision about that. Either Jesus is the truth, or he's a liar. And he's a fraud, because this is exactly what he said. I am the truth. Now, let me give you another altar that I just discovered. I'm evidently way behind, because when I said, talked to my younger staff, they knew all about this. Uh, so I need to read up a little more. And an altar to more, moralistic, moralistic therapeutic deism. Say that with me. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, what in the world is that? It's a term born out of a study of North American teenagers and their view on religion. And there was, what's interesting, there was no difference in the views of those teenagers who went to church regularly and those who never darkened the door of a church. The God of moralistic, therapeutic deism does not compare to the Bible, the God of the Bible. It, there, there's little bits and pieces of it that people have taken about the God of the Bible and made it into a whole 
new way to worship. Let me give you the tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. Number one, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Deism. Number two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central part, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Moralistic, therapeutic, therapeutic deism. And then the last one is good people go to heaven when they die. Now, Bill Jones last week talked about cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity. Therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism is cultural Christianity. I was sharing this, uh, this idea of this uh, new belief, moralistic therapeutic deism, with my good friend Brian Palmera. Brian is a brilliant businessman, good friend. Uh, he's the only cowboy I know. And uh, he uh, lives here in South Carolina, but has a place in Wyoming, and he goes out and, and, and takes people on guided hunts with, on horseback up into the, into the Yellowstone area of Wyoming. Just an incredible guy, just a brilliant guy, but a strong believer in Jesus. And I, I share with him the meaning and ask him if he ever heard of moralistic therapeutic deism, and he says, it reminds me of a cowboy poem called Typical. And then my buddy Brian quoted to me this poem. I'm going to share it with you. I wish I could do it as good as Brian, but I'll, I'll give it a try. It goes like this. Out on the cliff's edge, further than he'd ever been before, he sat with legs a-dangling high above the valley's floor. He was lost in thought when, while drinking in the grandeur of it all when a gust of wind upseated him and he began to fall. It was a drastic situation. He didn't dare think slow, for certain death awaited in those rocky crags below. He called upon a friend, I guess the only one he could, the one we all forget about when things are going good. He said, God, if you'll help me now, I'll quit my sinful ways. I'll do the things you have me do, and I'll work hard all my days. I'll spend time with my children. I'll help my loving wife. I'll quit the booze and whiskey, and I'll turn around my life. I'll work to help the needy, and I'll promise to repent. When just then a tree limb caught his coat and stopped his fast descent. And while dangling from the tree that grew out of that rocky shelf, he looked skyward saying, never mind, I handled it myself. That's a lot of people's view of God. God, when I'm in trouble, I'm going to ask for your help. And by the way, when you give it, I'll take credit for it myself. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. Here's what Psalm 115 says from the message. Our God is in heaven doing whatever he wants to do. Their gods are metal and wood, handmade in basement shops. Carved mouths that can't talk, painted eyes that can't see, tin ears that can't hear, molded noses that can't smell, hands that can't grasp, feet that can't walk or run, throats that never utter a sound. And here's the indictment. Those who make them have become just like them, have become just like the gods they trust. The Athenians, the philosophers, had become just like the gods they trusted. See, the Bible tells us that idols have no power. Idols have no life, and idols have no purpose. And those that, who worship at their altar become like them. People with no power, people with no purpose, and people with no life. My friends, if you worship the temporal, you will miss the eternal. 
if you worship the temporal, the here and the now, you'll miss the eternal. If you're investing only in the temporal, you'll miss the blessings of investing in eternity, in the kingdom of God that never ends and never ends. You see, the gods of this world will leave you unsatisfied. That's why there's so many of them. That's why they have 30,000 of them, because not one God would bring them satisfaction. They, also, they will also leave you unsure. That you'll wonder, is it enough? Is it enough? Is it working? I hope it works. I can tell you the people that are struggling on their deathbeds, when they say to me, I said, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? I hope so. They say, you want to be sure? Can I? Absolutely. I'd want to be sure. Wouldn't you want to be sure? If I'm getting ready to face eternity, I want to be sure that everything's okay. And how can I be sure? By simply inviting Jesus Christ into my heart and my life, asking him to forgive my sins. And he says, well, you, you, welcome home, son. Where have you been? <laughs> and prepare yourself for eternity. And, and then you see a person walk out of this life in, into eternity with a smile on their face, with a song in their heart, because they were ready. Uh, uncertainty. And the, the, these gods that you serve in this world are also unavailable. When things get rough, they're nowhere to be seen. They're on a perch somewhere, carved in a, in a building, in a house, in an automobile, in a boat, wherever it might be. You see, gods that consume demand our attention and steal our joy. And we've got a whole supermarket of gods. Social media, Hollywood, sports, Wall Street, pleasure, tolerance, secularism, individualism. What is individualism? It's a, it's a God that's sweeping this culture of ours that no one should tell me what I can't enjoy. No one's going to tell me to stop doing what makes me happy. God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be joyful. And no one's going to stop me. That's individualism. That's moralistic therapeutic deism. And I would ask you this morning, how many of you are sacrificing your family to those gods? How many of you are sacrificing your marriage to those gods? You know, you say, I don't have any gods in my life. I don't do that. Let me ask you, what do you value? What gets your attention? Where do you spend your time? If you can answer those three questions, you will know what you're worshiping. What gets your attention? What gets your time? Where do you spend your resources? Now, I'm glad to tell you this morning that God has been revealed that the unknown God has been unmasked because without revelation and incarnation, God would have remained unknown. And going on in the chapter in Acts 17, he, Paul says in his sermon, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples and human hands can't serve his needs. He has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He satisfies every need. This is our God we're talking about. He satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall. He determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Today, God is not far from you. You may feel far from him, but he's not far from you. He's as close as saying, Father, forgive me. Father, have mercy on me. Father, come into my life. So this God that's been unmasked, this unknown God that, that Paul is preaching about is not created. 
He is not a created God. He is supreme. He is the one that made the world and everything in it. He gave life and breath to everything in his world. If you're breathing today, God did it. You didn't do it. God did it. God has given you breath to breathe this morning. And if you're still alive and breathing, God has a purpose for your life. This God that uh, cannot be created is described in Colossians. I love what Colossians says. Paul says, we look at this son, Jesus, and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this son and see God's original purpose in everything. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds his purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together up to this moment. Jesus Christ, God's son. God cannot be contained. He does not need shrines. He doesn't need temples. He has no needs. God is not a taker. He's a giver. He has no equals. He has no rivals. This God that Paul reveals to us is in control. I believe that our God is sovereign. I'm a Methodist pastor because Billy Graham said a word about revival, but in order to be a Methodist pastor who lived into an itinerant system where every year you could be moved to another church by the bishop of the Methodist church, I believe in the sovereignty of God. That bishops don't make that decision, that God makes that decision. Amen? I mean, it's God who is in control. And as bad as the world gets, hey, I'm on the winning team. You know, God is, is going to have the final say, and he is in control. Also, I believe that the Bible teaches that God is not only in control, but that God is compassionate. He's available. He's accessible. He's knowable. He doesn't play hide and seek with you. He has given the great Ali Ali in free. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He doesn't demand daily sacrifices for it to be appeased because he's already given his son as a sacrifice for the appeasement of our sins. You know, Einstein, the great scientist, says you've got to be a fool not to believe there's a cosmic power. Now, Einstein doubted whether you could know the cosmic power, but Paul says, yes, he's real, and you can know him through Jesus, his son. And finally, I'll say to you this morning, the God that Paul knows knows you. He knows you. He knows you. He knows your pain. He knows your hurts. He knows everything about you. You know, Blaise Pascal said this, there are two types of men, those who are afraid to lose God and those who are afraid they might find him. There are people here this morning that are afraid they, they might find God and that God might ask them to do something they never thought they could do. That God may send me to some foreign land to be a missionary. I'm not sure I can do that, God. Well, if God calls you, he'll make a way for you. But God simply wants you to start in your heart and start in your family and start at work, being the person he wants you to be. And then Pascal also went on to say, Pascal, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each person which cannot be satisfied by any created carved thing, but only by God the creator made known through Jesus Christ. This God knows you. He knows you. He hears your cry for help. He knows your frustration. He knows your sorrow. He knows your disappointment. He knows your sadness.
And this God loves you. And this God has a purpose for your life. And this God wants to take your life in a new direction. How is that possible? Because Jesus came to this earth and sin defeated Jesus on a cross. But on the third day, he resurrected and defeated sin and defeated death. Now, there were three responses to Paul's great message in Athens. The first response was they mocked him. They ridiculed him. And I'm sure there, if there are certain people here today, maybe from a newspaper or from some media or science group, they would probably ridicule this sermon because it's just about Jesus. <laughs> Give me some scientific fact. I can't prove today to you that God is real, but I can testify that God is in my heart. I felt him. I've seen him move. I've seen him change lives. They mocked him. They were cynical. And then there were others that delayed. They said, give us some more time to study this. And today you can make those two decisions. You can reject Jesus. But there'll be some consequences. You know, you can reject gravity and there are going to be some consequences. I just made a wrong step right here. Gravity would kick in and it would not be pretty. And it would just end this sermon really badly. You can uh, reject your calendar and it may not go well for you this week when you miss all the appointments that you had scheduled. You, you can reject your GPS on your car and you can end up lost, have no idea where you're at. You know, God gave us free will. We can do anything we like. But I'll just say this morning, if you mock God and if you mock and reject Jesus Christ, you will pay for it with emptiness. You will pay for it with frustration. You will pay for it with mispurpose and opportunities to be who God made you to be. You will pay for it with a lack of peace and a lack of joy. In the end, in this passage, Paul says you'll all, with all of us, face judgment. And unless we repent and receive Christ, we will face judgment. It's not my words. It's, it's Paul's sermon. There's judgment coming, a day of reckoning for all of us, all of us. And I'm relieved that I stand in judgment before the judgment seat of God with the grace of Jesus Christ, forgiven by the grace of God. Amen? Amen. So this morning, what will you do? We're going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to stand. Would you stand? I'm going to invite you all over this room to respond to a simple invitation of inviting Jesus Christ into your heart and life. Take a chance on Jesus. Take a chance on Almighty God. I'm going to ask you to come forward and, and, and pray, even as I'm talking right now. Just begin to move out wherever you are while the music's being played. We're going to sing in just a few minutes, but um, would, would you come and give your heart to Jesus Christ? This morning we have several people come and make a first-time commitment to Jesus Christ, believing in Him for the very first time in their life. Maybe you've been away from Jesus Christ. You've been away from God. You've been trying the gods of the world, and they're not working for you. And you've got troubles, you've got problems, you know that. Will you come and give your heart to Jesus Christ? There's nothing powerful about making a public statement, saying, God, I'm stepping out here, I'm gonna trust in you. Will you do that? Father God, I pray right now that all across this room, by every eyes closed, heads are bowed, that people would move out and say, I wanna trust Jesus. I wanna give my life to him. I wanna, I wanna rededicate my life to Christ. I wanna become a follower of Jesus. 
I want to, I want to try Jesus in my heart, in my life. I, I want Jesus to forgive my sins. I want him to begin to heal the broken relationships I have in my life. I want him to help me put my life back together. Father God, will you move right now in people's hearts and lives? Will you move? Will you move? Right where you are, will you step out? There are people up here that'll pray with you, walk you through what's next in your life. This morning, if you've made a decision to receive Christ in your life, maybe where you're standing, and you've never been baptized, and you want to come and be baptized this morning, you can be baptized with some other folks. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you never got baptized. You can be baptized today. We're going to sing this song, and it's called Move, and we're God. We need a movement of God, and that's what revival is. I want this altar is going to be open, and you can come here as the Holy Spirit speaks to you. If you feel that pounding on your heart, you feel that uneasiness, uneasiness and the conviction, then don't, don't hesitate. Surrender your life to the Lord. Give him, give him your heart. Trust him with your life. Bring your mess to him. Don't try to clean your mess up. Just bring your mess to him and say, God, here's my mess. Will you, will you, will you help me straighten things out? I've really messed up. No matter what age you are, will you come to God and let him move in your heart today? Again, as we continue to worship, there's some folks going to be baptized over here, but don't, don't hesitate to come. Wherever you are, just come and let God move. Let, let, let revival, awakening happen right now as we sing, as we worship. And Trevor and, and Daniel over here are preparing to help people be baptized. And So when they get baptized, you celebrate, you cheer. But if you feel led to come and pray, don't miss this moment. This is your moment that God has given you this morning.